Well, before I was a pastor, um, I used to be uh, a communications director on Capitol Hill in a federal agency. And uh, one of the things you talk about in communications, I'm sure many of you have heard, is uh, sort of if you have a project or an idea, what's, what's your elevator pitch? You know, you hop in an elevator, you have that contact, you want to be able to summarize your message before you get to the third floor or the fifth floor. And so I think one of the questions for us today as we conclude uh, this letter to the Ephesians is um, what is Paul's elevator pitch? And as we step away from this book, how can we have in our hearts and in our minds a clear grasp of how to put the message of Ephesians in a few sentences to a friend or a neighbor or to our own hearts as we need this message of comfort and peace. And I think Paul kind of begs us to do that in his closing benediction. So that will be our text this morning, but we will take a a broad view on the message of the epistle in summary. This is God's word. So that you also may know how I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Join me in our prayer. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Please be seated. Well, depending on what your particular view is of uh, the church calendar, the season of Advent, the Christmas holidays, um, this is the time in which uh, many in our world, in our culture, uh, celebrate the birth of Christ in various and sundry ways or to different degrees. And you all are probably aware of the fact that the holiday season, though it is filled with much outward festivity and joy and celebration of peace, is... uh, Nevertheless, for for very many people, a time of great sadness. Uh, For many who have lost loved ones, they think back on their absence at those holiday festivities at this time of year. For many who are lonely throughout the year, that loneliness can be exacerbated. You can be in a room full of people, as I'm sure you all know, and feel incredibly lonely, whether it's a holiday office party or even a church gathering. There's this irony, right, that we celebrate all these massive platitudes of joy and peace. And sometimes in our hearts, there's anything but. And we we pile it on with sugary food and consumption and sentiment and purchases. We pile on all the things that should make us feel good, right? Because they give us that serotonin in the brain pumping through our veins. And yet it doesn't doesn't satisfy. And I, I thought of that sort of counterintuitive reality of the holiday season as I reflected on the message of Ephesians. Ephesians has this amazing gospel truth. And I would say the message of grace and peace, which Paul opens the letter with. Grace and peace to you. 
And then he comes back and closes the letter with a benediction of peace and grace. And I think in opening and closing with these two words, he's giving us his sort of elevator pitch, right? He's saying, this is the theme that I want you to see as central to all of of the gospel as it bears fruit in your lives. And yet this glorious theme, the message of grace, nowhere more clear, more beautifully conveyed than in, in what I think Paul, as he's sitting there in chains, in prison, in Rome, wondering whether he'll see, ever preach another sermon. Yes, the word is going forth as he shares it with his jailers and his imprisoners, but not knowing whether he'll be in another worship service with the saints in a place. And he pens this sort of prototypical, like, here's a model sermon you can preach. (laughs) Take this, circulate it. It's general. It's not talking about any of the particular issues. He's presenting the gospel in this general way. And he says, grace and peace kind of sums this whole thing up. And I think in this closing, he's, he's trying to pull our minds back to the opening that we might think of the whole, the shape of the whole, how we could summarize the whole thing. So that's the approach I want to take today. And, and I would just say that one of the key themes, right? And we saw this just recently in the immediately preceding verses. Paul is in prison. Paul is in chains. He has this message of freedom and peace and grace and unity of all things in Christ Jesus. And he's worried that the church might see the real nitty gritty of life in the world today and be discouraged. But he says, I am not discouraged. Because my treasure, my heart is set on God's grace in heaven and the peace that gives us. So literally, I want to just take a moment and and, and listen, if you will, just thinking through the six chapters of this book. Uh, My first point is just what is the summary message of the whole? And one of the things that we've come back again many, many times is that the first three chapters are very neatly a presentation of of the truth, what Christ has done for us. The, The indicative voice reigns supreme. He's describing who we are by faith in Christ Jesus. And then he turns the corner, chapter 4, verse 1. So the first thing to remember is this indicative and then imperative, how then shall we walk in a manner worthy of the calling, given what Christ has given to us, the gifts he has showered on us. How shall we move forward in and through this world, which as we'll see is a spiritual battle, right? So in chapter 1, what is the good news Paul has for the saints in Ephesus? And he begins by lifting their gaze to heaven, to this cosmic perspective. And he goes back in time from before the foundation of the world. And he thinks about all the spiritual blessings that are, are grounded in God's choice. His calling and election of the church in Christ before the foundation of the world. And this, this calling, this gospel call... Revealed the mystery of a will that all things would be united. A plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven heaven and on earth. Similar to the season of Christmas, right? This huge, broad, glorious truth. When he chose us, he designated us heirs. He blessed us with abundant riches. And that language flows throughout this letter as well. How wealthy. Ephesus was a wealthy banking center. And Paul wants the church, probably made up of many more humble people and some great and mighty ones, to know that their great treasure, their great wealth is in the grace and mercy of Christ. And he concludes this first chapter by giving thanks for the saints of Ephesus and praying that their eyes might be open to the stupendous working of God in their lives. Not only is Christ seated in the heavenly places, but he's given to the church as our head to be with us, to lead us and guide us. 
And he's revealed his concern for believers to understand their intimate connection with their Savior and with each other. And that's why that rises as a theme in this work as well, our unity with Christ in the body and the church. Now, in chapter 2, Paul descends, as it were, from the great cosmic plan in the heavenly places down to how it works itself out. This is redemption applied. And the first 10 verses of chapter 2 are how this redemption works itself out in individuals. And then in the second 12 verses, he looks at the corporate aspect of this, right? We, we read in these verses that each one of us were dead men. Dead in our trespasses and sins. But we were literally, like Lazarus, made alive. And twice he strikes this theme here of, by grace you have been saved. And what does that look like? What is grace? It is being dead and being brought back to life. Creation from nothing. It is a new creation moment. No boasting. And then he shifts and and literally almost follows the same outline, but applies it to the corporate reality. He says, you Gentiles, you were all separated from Christ. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You were hopeless. You were without God in the world. But those who were far off were brought near. For he himself, he writes, Christ is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And so the grace of God in individual lives and individual hearts brings peace to the world, brings peace in our lives and to the church. And we see, he says, we preach peace to those who are far off, far from God. Peace to those who were near. And the the preaching of peace underlies this fact that the gospel is a message of peace. He calls it the gospel of peace, which shods our feet later, right? It's the content of our preaching. This isn't peace like we might see it on a Christmas card or a bumper sticker, you know, that says coexist. This is peace in the person of Christ, of whom we're all members of by faith in his body here on earth. And we'll see that that this message of peace is going to be fleshed out in terms of how we walk in unity with one another. No longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens. We're part of a household. We're part of a temple that God dwells in. And this final uh, part of of this indicative truth is is a little bit of a detour. But in chapter 3, Paul says, hey, I know I'm a prisoner. Don't get discouraged. I know I'm in chains, but I'm here for the Lord. I'm here as a steward of his grace, which has been given to me. This is a gift that I am suffering here in prison in Rome for Jesus. And he prays this great prayer that the church might know, might Come to comprehend God's kindness, his mercy, his grace, his love, which is unimaginable. And to know that God, who is able to do far more abundantly than we can even ask or think. And so, to close out this first half of the the letter, we have more. We have more given to us. We have more armor, divine armor, as he'll come back to in chapter 6, right? Clothing us, protecting us, preserving us, caring for us as we move through this world that we can imagine. And it's with that sort of preparation that he turns, as the church has been showered with the grace and peace of God, he turns to the way of walking in this world. So what? Sometimes people say, well, that's a great gospel message. So what? How does it change your life? What does it matter? And the first thing that Paul turns to the first 
theme that he strikes is that we might live. The most disparate people in the world might live at peace together in the church. He says we should be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And this requires humility. This requires gentleness. This requires patience. I.e. it's hard to be at peace with those who are sinners like you. The peace with which we are blessed is not only a noun, but it's a verb. It's an action. You have to walk in it. And that's a fight. It is something that we must maintain. And when he talks about the gifts, the graces that are showered from heaven, grace given to each one according to God's measure, what he's saying is that individuals have been gifted with different graces, different ministries and callings in the church. And the strength of the church is this very diversity of the unique individuals. All of who go together to make up like members of the body. And the life of the believer is actualized because their old self is taken away. And the new self has been granted to them. But it's a new self which operates in unity with the church. The new creation. Put away falsehood. Speak the truth in love. Forgive one another as Christ forgave us. We read this in chapter 4 this morning in our law passage. The image of a family. Notice this closing benediction is addressed to you, brothers. To you, sisters. Live like a family. Chapter 5 talks about this walk of the new creation as a walk of wisdom. We walk with light shining now, not in the darkness. And the Spirit, we depend upon the Spirit who fills the church as we engage faithfully in the activities of addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing, making melody, giving thanks And submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We are filled with the Spirit, not merely individually, but corporately, brothers and sisters. It is by the Spirit and by our unity and our fellowship one another and our worshiping life together that the Spirit continues to work out this new creation in us. And this new creation, this way of selfless living... Works itself out in our particular circumstances. And he turns then under this heading of submission to wives and husbands and children and parents. Slaves and their masters. The Christian life is a life of selfless love and service. Self-denial, even as Christ set all aside his heavenly glory. And this metaphor of the armor of God in chapter 6. In conclusion, is this whole idea of of the indicative imperative. We have these gifts. The reality of us is not what we see and feel every day. (laughs) The real reality, the real truth about each one of us is how God sees us. How he is remaking us after the image of his son. And that works itself out even now by way of anticipation. So I would argue that this this spiritual armor is, is a similar metaphor, right? We are putting on the very armor that Christ himself uses and wielded as our Messiah. Great conqueror. Truth. Righteousness. Holiness. The gospel. And it is now ours as we're united to Christ by faith. And that brings us to our second point. So that's the big picture, right? It's this pattern, really, of... Gospel good news working itself out in our lives. Paul opened by sending grace and peace to the saints who are in Ephesus from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And grace and peace are woven throughout this book many times over. And he closes under the inspiration, I think, 
quite clearly this New Testament apostolic benediction that appears again and again and again under the inspiration of what we read in Numbers. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. The benediction that is a part of God's people in the Old Testament. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. He gives them his grace. And the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace, grace and peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless him. And what Paul is saying, what the apostles are saying is that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. Greater than any son of Aaron. Greater than any Levite. Made a priest by the oath sworn in eternity past. And he is speaking a benediction on us from heaven. Through his ministers. This is the fulfillment of that Aaronic blessing. Paul in closing proclaims this blessing on the new household of God. And the gospel of peace goes with us into the world. It brings peace in the church, in our homes, in all of our relationships. And we are called to to fight for that peace, as it were, with this spiritual battle. Again, you may be asking yourself if the gospel preaches peace, if God's grace unites warring parties, Jews, Gentiles, slaves, free men, in one new humanity, to use Paul's image, why is there so much warfare in the world? Not only out there on the international Uh, geopolitical front as we have many people who serve in the military here can attest to that but why is there warfare in our homes in our marriages in Christian homes why are there warfare in the church and I do think that that this idea of of Christmas time in the world this season right is a relevant analogy the message of Ephesians is we need to take these truths about who we are And live accordingly. We need to have the spirit open our minds to what God has given us. The riches, the abundance we have access to. And that is a transformative truth. And then a transformative, not just intellectual, experience in the life of the church. As we're written into a new story. Into the liturgy of the gospel. The riches of God's grace are beyond our comprehension. The depth of his love is something that we in our sin and brokenness can't ever fully receive. We were in darkness, Paul says. And Paul's prayer is that the church may come to comprehend through the working of the spirit this great mystery. So grace and peace are nouns. But as we strive to walk in newness of life, they have to be actualized. They have to become verbs. Grace is the gift given to us. And so we live in gratitude. So we acknowledge this gift. That's a daily pattern of repentance. Acknowledgement of our sins. And the gift and favor we have in Christ's grace. We humble ourselves. If you need an image, just remember you're like Lazarus. Dead man in a tomb. Brought back to life. But again, brought back to life for a purpose. For good works. Not that you can boast. But good works that were prepared for you. And I would submit that that the argument of Paul's epistle is those works start in the church. They start in our communities of faithful love and service in the home, in the family. 
So this blessing tells us, again, what we've been given, what has been promised us in the future, because he's saying that I'm putting this blessing on you that you might have more grace and peace and faith and love, and what we are called to, how we walk in this world. The first step in this walk, in the structure of this sermon, is being eager to maintain the unity and the spirit and the bond of peace. And there's one body, one spirit, called the one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Where does the unity come from? It comes from God's own unity. As he showers us upon us and baptizes us into the life of the church. So the very power of the resurrection. Power which brought Christ back to life. Is at work in us. At one time you were darkness. But now you are light. The power that speaks, let there be light. Creates something from nothing. Paul in Romans says that Abraham believed in the one who out of nothing can bring things into existence. That's what the Christian life is. It's fully gifted to us. And that's Christ's prayer for you today. Proclaimed from on high through his ministers. I um, have referenced often as I've been reading through with a good bit of care. uh, The commentary of Steve Baugh, who was my New Testament professor back in the day, some 25 years ago. And he closes this section, he closes his commentary with these words. Drawing our attention to how Paul's benediction here should shape how we think about the benediction that is a part of our worship service each and every week. And I can't say better than he said, so I'll read this extended quote. The benediction at the end of the Christian worship service is its absolute high point. When I first heard that, I thought, That's, I'm not sure I agree, right? I love the Lord's Supper. <laughs> I love the absolution of sins. Like, yeah, you know, you can have a good argument about that. But here's his case. Due to our human weakness, it may be that we long for it to occur for the wrong reasons. For parents, it means no more dealing with fidgeting kids. For kids, it means no more fidgeting in anticipation of a snack and some playtime. I challenge you, however, to see the concluding benediction as the crown jewel of our corporate worship with the Lord every week. Its origin at the end of the worship service is the apostolic benedictions at the end of the epistles. Its meaning goes back to the Israelite high priest's solemn covenant function to put God's name on his people so that he can bless them. The benediction in our service is not a pious wish of the minister. What makes it so special is what God is doing. He puts his name on us and blesses us with his smile and with his peace. To lift up his countenance is a Hebrew idiom for smile. God loves you. It's so hard for us to remember that. It's easy for us to be angry with God in the circumstances of our life. And to wonder how I've messed up. What I've done. And to try to earn ourselves back into his good graces. But there is nothing we can do. You've ever reported to a supervisor. Or a boss. Or someone who holds your future in their hands. Or as a child. If you've ever reported to your father. My dad was an airline pilot. So he used to take these two or three day trips. All through my youth. Invariably, at some point during that two or three days, you know, you guys know the old line from the, the sitcom, like, wait till your father gets home, right? I would do something 
to upset my mother. And, and one of the things that I would always do, it seemed like I broke this one like plastic window in our backyard a hundred times because it was where we threw the ball against the wall and the ball would miss and it would break the window. I thought, oh no, dad's coming home tonight. I'm going to be in trouble. He's going to be mad. You all know that feeling in the pit of your stomach. My father is angry, disappointed, sad. But this blessing is our heavenly father's smile upon us. My good and faithful son, well done. My good and beautiful daughter, your service is perfect. Because he sees all of us through the lens of his son, Jesus Christ, who we are united to by faith. What a blessing that is. And that brings us to the third and final point. And for those fidgeting children and their parents, uh, I hope it is short and sweet. Should be. The epistle closes with these two words, translated in our ESV with with love incorruptible. Love isn't there, though. The two words are the preposition in and the word incorruptibility. In incorruptibility. And there's a little bit of, of debate about what this phrase means. Peace be to the brothers. Uh, or rather, verse 24. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ in incorruptibility. Now, our translation says that in incorruptibility is referring back to the way we love Jesus. We love him with a love incorruptible. And that's a possible way to translate this phrase. But it's a little bit odd syntactically to have words here that modify a word way over here in the sentence in word order. Uh, some people, uh, some older translations say, uh, who love Christ sincerely, right? Something that's incorruptible is pure and so sincere, maybe. And there's even some of the modern paraphrase translations. I had a chuckle at this. It said, sincerely, Paul. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd go with that paraphrase, right? Like, this is Paul signing his letter in incorruptibility. I don't think so. I think it may refer to Jesus as the one who dwells in incorruptibility. Paul uses this word uh, about seven times in the New Testament. He uses it to talk about immortality in Romans chapter 2. And in 2 Timothy, he speaks of the appearing of Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality. It has to do with the resurrection, this word. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he uses the word four times in a paragraph. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, but it is raised imperishable. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. It's this idea of imperishability. For the trumpet, Paul continues in Corinthians, will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable. You understand, brothers and sisters, our bodies right now, these broken, rickety things... Cannot inherit glory. We can't comprehend its beauty. We can't know the love of God in Christ. Our minds are too small. And still darkened by sin. And so Paul is saying here to the Corinthians. Like a seed that falls into the soil. And produces this great beautiful tree. And it's fruit. So too these corporal bodies. Need to take on the resurrection glorified body. To enter 
and to all the blessings which God has preserved for you. When the perishable, Paul concludes, has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Perhaps Paul here is not speaking of our incorruptible love, but rather of our ascended and risen Lord Jesus Christ who dwells, who is in incorruptibility right this moment. And perhaps in the midst of whatever crap, pardon my French, we're going through in the holiday season, whatever darkness we're feeling, whatever muck our day-to-day life is in this perishable, broken down, sin-stained world, this veil of tears, we have everything in Christ and his grace which is stored up for us where things can't rust or fall apart in glory is ours. And so Paul, I think in this benediction is not only putting the name of the Lord Jesus Christ on his people, but he's saying that Lord Jesus Christ is even now in that glorified body stored up for you. He's in incorruptibility. So lift your eyes to heaven and look there and put your hope and confidence there for his promises are all yes. And amen. Let's pray. Lord, our life today, we might be in prison with the Apostle Paul. But we know that this world will not continue on. But a trumpet will sound. And the dead will be raised. And when they are raised, they will be imperishable. And we will be changed. And we look now to your heavenly Son. He who has entered glory on our behalf and is seated at the right hand. In whom all things are united. Who fills all creation. We look now to his glorious grace and peace. And we cling to that. Confidently with hope. And joy. Pray that we might be made after his image. In his name. Amen.